Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers the Ken Burns documentary, Mark Twain, from about 20 years ago, I think. I covered this a few years ago. I'm representing this material here, and it ties into the current moment quite well because Ken Burns just aired a documentary, a new documentary, on uh, another uh, great American author, Ernest Hemingway. So I haven't seen that one yet, but I'm sure it makes an interesting comparison point with this. If you have seen it, uh, please write in. Let me know what you think of both that film and this one, or just the subjects in general of Hemingway and Twain, both obviously a lot to talk about there. The last episode of this podcast covered Blue Velvet, and that was a tie-in to a much larger uh, endeavor on my Patreon, which at the time, it wasn't quite ready yet. It went up a day or two after my public podcast was published. So if you missed that, it'll be linked below again, and uh, you can check it out. It was a whole episode on uh, Patreon for $1 a month patrons, covering Blue Velvet as Twin Peaks Cinema. So in my public podcast, I just talked about the film as a standalone, but in this patron version, I talk about uh, for, I think, over an hour. It was one of my longest segments talking about this film that came right before Twin Peaks and David Lynch's career and how both it shaped Twin Peaks and also just more unconscious connections between the two. There was so much to dig into there. I also read uh, many archive pieces from my own site that I'd written about Blue Velvet in the past, both on that episode and also three bonus episodes where one of them uh, features clips from videos and podcasts where I used Blue Velvet. Uh, another bonus uh, mentions all the times that I drew connections between Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet on my site, and then also other connections to other films. And uh, in addition to that on this podcast, I also uh, did Twin Peaks Reflections, tying Blue Velvet to a storyline in Twin Peaks called, uh, well, I called it uh, Jean Renault Framing Cooper. It's about uh, characters on the show that have a somewhat similar criminal kind of escapade going on to what happens in the film Blue Velvet. And in addition to all that, I covered as my uh, additional film in focus a documentary, an experimental documentary called Blue Velvet Revisited which was a fascinating avant-garde piece of work that really captured something about the flavor of those times. I discuss a lot my kind of ruminations on the 80s, uh, the time that I was born, and how this film kind of evoked that for me. And, and I just, there was so much to talk about there. I loved it. And then in addition to that, there's more Twin Peaks reflections on the characters of Denise and Betty, the locations of the Briggs home and Dead Dog Farm, and much more than that as well. And also on Patreon, for a dollar a month patrons, I released my Lost in Twin Peaks episode coverage of episode 20 from the mid-season. And for $5 a month patrons, uh, they get six months in advance on Lost in Twin Peaks. So they got the episode uh, 26 from late in the season. Coming up to the end of that. So if you're interested in Twin Peaks and you want a full-on episode guide, you jump in now, $5 a month. You'll soon be getting the uh, finale episode and Firewalk Me and all that. So exciting times ahead. Uh, in addition, in public on my uh, site, lostinthemovies.com, I continued my Mad Men Season 4 viewing diary, covering Episodes 4 and 5, The Rejected, and The Chrysanthemum, and The Sword. So, with all of that out of the way, let's jump into Mark Twain. His humor is timeless. I was born modest, but it didn't last. And so was his story. I was made merely in the image of God but not otherwise resembling him enough to be mistaken for him by anybody but a very nearsighted person. Directed by Ken Burns. Don't miss Mark Twain, only on PBS.
Mark Twain was a Ken Burns uh, documentary sort of miniseries. It's only uh, about four hours, which is kind of short for his stuff. But it appeared over two episodes in 2002. And lately, for whatever reason, like a month ago, I don't know if this is a local thing where I am or what, but PBS was running this uh, quite a bit for a few weeks. And uh, it took me a while to get through all of it. I just, for, due to circumstance, I would watch it sort of piecemeal. So I stumbled across the first episode about halfway through and got hooked and couldn't stop watching it and then went back and watched the rest of that one and then watched like half of the second one and then finally just finished the whole thing um, a little week ago. So I'm generally a pretty big fan of certainly some of Ken Burns' work. For American listeners, I probably don't have to explain who he is, but for those outside, maybe, I I don't know, he may not be as familiar a figure. He is definitely the go-to historical documentary, and particularly for, like, public television in the U.S. for, like, pretty broad subjects. But, But I think most of his works either touch on race, war, or the 19th century, or all of the above. Everything he does, there's an emphasis on it being an American subject and seeing it through the prism of what it tells us about the U.S. His big one was the Civil War in the early 90s. That's what he's most famous for. That will always be his biggest legacy. And that actually had a pretty big cultural impact at the time. And part of the reason I think that, well, I actually I know based on, I think, uh, Brad Duke's Reflections book, that part of the reason Ben Horn uh, dresses up as a Civil War general in the back the second season of Twin Peaks is because all of the writers were obsessed with the Civil War and uh, they wanted to the Ken Burns series the Civil War I mean specifically because that was written in the fall of 1990 and that's right around the time that uh, PBS was airing this and it was getting huge numbers like unheard of numbers for like a PBS documentary it was getting like Super Bowl numbers I think so after that he kept going with these mini-series. Probably his biggest ones since then have been Baseball in the mid-90s, where he did uh, a history of baseball, and then Jazz in the late 90s. And I actually saw a festival screening in, I think, 1999, where he was present presenting an episode of Jazz. And then he did was it just called The War? It was about World War II, the one he did a documentary on World War II in the mid-2000s, and then recently, I think just last year, he did the Vietnam War. I don't know to what extent, but he definitely has his detractors, and I, I would say for myself, sometimes his style can get a little bit old. He has a very, very ident- immediately identifiable trademark style that's also been picked up by a lot of other uh, PBS-type documentaries, and his brother Rick Burns makes these sort of films as well. He did one on the history of New York, which is totally fascinating, but also falls into these tropes of sometimes repeating certain bits of wisdom in a very portentous, yet kind of folksy narration, and the music swells, and we zoom in on one particular photo, and New York gets into a point where it repeats itself so much. Somebody did a brilliant parody, which I mean, this would be the perfect setup to say, check below in the links, you'll see it. But I haven't been able to find this for 10 years. It was on, I think, a blog called like Another White Meat or something like that. And they just did a mock transcript of an episode of New York where they're repeating the same things about and and playing the same songs and zooming in on the same photo. And then every 20 seconds saying, but then New York was about to change forever. So there's a style. This is certainly within that style. This is probably one of the strongest Ken Burns pieces I've seen. And I think also sometimes too, he can fall into the repetition in his longer series. Civil War pulls that off the best, but 
I know jazz, for example, I got a little tired of it because every episode they'd be like, so, so yeah, this jazz musician was doing something. But then Louis Armstrong cut away to Louis Armstrong for the rest of that episode. He can get a little overbearing in the longer form sometimes, but Mark Twain is perfect with the two programs, the four hours. So that's a lot of buildup. But let's talk about Mark Twain now. First of all, this is fascinating just because Mark Twain himself is so fascinating. He's one of those humorists who doesn't seem to date that much like he's very much of his time but the things he wrote are still funny they'll still laugh out loud at at some of the stuff and the fact that he was a humorist who also was taken seriously at least eventually as a great literary author perhaps the great american author particularly in terms of the adventures of huckleberry finn and that's a book that this documentary focuses on a good deal certainly the centerpiece of the documentary without a doubt he doesn't dwell on it and come back and hit it over the head he has a certain section where that's the focus near the back of part one and then moves on to the other topics it would be interesting i think to see if this documentary was made today if they would deal with huckleberry finn in the exact same way. I think it's very much of the mind that it is uncomplicatedly like an anti-racist work and one of the great pieces of anti-racist literature out there. The way these things have trended since then, I do wonder if there'd be more of a critique. The documentary in general talks about uh, Mark Twain's relationship with race quite a bit. His father was at one point owned slaves. But I don't know if it was before he was born or what, because they, they by the time he's a child, they talk more about, okay, they didn't have much money. The father died when he was pretty young and everything like that. But he was around slaves all the time in Hannibal, Missouri, which was where he lived from, I think, like nine to 14 or 15 or something like that. And that's the area that Tom, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer is based in. And he would periodically go back and visit there. It was definitely a touchstone for him throughout his life. And the documentary just does such a great job of capturing that, capturing the feeling of that time. And so anyway, so he grew up uh, around slaves a lot and it was just an accepted part of life. And then the Civil War hit and uh, he briefly joined like a, a very amateurish Confederate militia that then broke up and he ended up going west at with the assistance of his brother who was a prominent union supporter and actually was given the governorship i believe the governorship or maybe some sort of secretary no i think he was actually the governor of which territory was it i think arizona by lincoln because he was a supporter of the union even though he was a southerner so really in that sense mark twain kind of was highly connected which is funny to think back because earlier in his life they didn't have much going for them there was like a small town paper that his brother ran going out to Arizona. And as he travels west, you get to see the American West in the 1860s. And he writes about that. He managed to be present at all these crucial times and places in American history in like the latter half of the 19th century and even into the early 20th century. You know, the last images of him we have are like film of him, you know, with a with a uh, motion picture camera uh, with, with various celebrities and honorables and things like that so he spanned this whole period as he went through his life he became particularly aware and sensitive to racial issues and they talk about how he was a benefactor to a black law student who went on to be Thurgood Marshall's mentor and he was speaking out on these various issues he was very anti-imperialist one of the most powerful passages of this documentary is a story that he wrote that was was basically introduced as a transcription more or less or a retelling because i don't think he was writing while she was telling it but a story that his servant told about her days as a slave and how her son was separated from her and then they were reunited when he was 
in, in when the the Union forces arrived and liberated the plantation, he was one of those soldiers. Pretty amazing story. Mark Twain wrote it like in her voice, totally, just as she had told it, and uh, sent it to Harper's or whatever one of those. I think the Atlantic. And it's a very powerful centerpiece to film, although it did have me wondering. It's like, you know, this was her story and apparently just more or less told exactly she told it. Did he give her some of the money from the publication? I would hope so, but they brush right past it. Overall, they talk about what a complex character he was, and they particularly divide him into Sam Clemens and Mark Twain. With Sam Clemens, you know, that was his real name. And that's the name I kept, he kept, I think, legally for his whole life. He was always Samuel Clemens. Mark Twain was his pen name, but that was how he was known to the public. Mark Twain was sort of the jaundiced, uh, always ready with a quip, humorist and satirist, the dominant presence that, that was always ready to assert himself and shine in the public eye. There was a point where they say, you know, the most beloved person in America is is basically Mark Twain in the later part of his life. But Sam Clemens, as they describe it, the, the you know, day-to-day person, he was very complicated. He had these outrages at American society and eventually as time went on very vehemently toward God and religion. I haven't read any of Mark Twain's later writing. I'd be interested to know anybody who's listening to this that has what your compression is. They talk about that a lot at the end of the documentary and how dark and cynical it got and just excoriating God and calling him, saying that the Bible was like the biography, one of the most ruthless, uh, unflinching biographies of a villain of all time, meaning, you know, God, the way he, that, that God treats people throughout the Bible. For all of that, at the same time, he also hobnobbed with a lot of dignitaries, and he was, like, fun bankrolled at one point when he was deeply in debt by a big, I don't remember if he was an industrialist or financier, but someone who was very much one of the honchos of, like, the Gilded Age, which Mark Twain himself named the Gilded Age because he wrote the book The Gilded Age, which was a, a excoriation of corruption and greed that characterized America in the 1870s and 1880s. So he was a social critic. He was also upper crust bourgeois. He was from the more downtrodden Southern background. Then he was a Connecticut Yankee, as he wrote in his book, Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. He lived in Connecticut for years. They spent a lot of time on his house he had there. You know, he was a tinkerer and, and tried to invent things, and he invested a whole lot of money and lost a lot of money. And for 10 years in the 1890s, both to try to earn money, writing, he would go on tour, and his wife had to live in Europe for her health. There's tragedies with his children, and it's just such a drama. And then the way that the film is made in itself is is so absorbing. Like, there's certain subjects that are perfectly suited to Ken Burns' style, Civil War being the most obvious one. I always felt like sometimes when he gets into the 20th century, he's not as much on his game. I didn't see much of the Vietnam War series, just saw a clip or two. I did watch a fair amount of the World War II one. He's more of like a still photo, narration, and... I don't want to say talking head exactly because they're more like narrators, these historians, these people he finds who tell the stories of history in a very engaging way. The obvious example of this being Shelby Foote in uh, the Civil War documentary, like he just became a celebrity off of that series. People were so fascinated with his style and his, his anecdotal abilities to just weave these stories and his thick southern drawl so uh the mark twain documentary has several of those they have hal holbrook who might have played mark twain at one point they have quite a few historians talking about him and they also have some writers arthur miller has some interesting insights the one who wrote the confessions of nat turner he also has interesting insights into twain and his place in american literature and just his personality too you know this was he was a very 
for all of his humor, he's a very depressive person. He had these crises and tragedies in his life. These storytellers are able to tell those stories, but but really the bulk of the narrative, I think, is conveyed just through the music, the photographs, and the narration. In this case, the narration is by Keith David, who I didn't recognize like at the time from the voice, but afterwards looking it up, it was like, oh my God, of course, yeah, that's him. And he's perfectly chosen for this. Through that, he's just able to create a mood. And that's, I think, what always pulls people into Ken Burns' work. Yes, the subject is interesting, the way it's arranged in terms of the narrative, which of course there were other writers on this. All of that is very strong, but I'm also just fascinated by a few things. I went on a little bit of a Mark Twain bender in September because of this documentary and just thinking about how perfectly he's able to encapsulate that era and also kind of bring it alive, both Ken Burns and Mark Twain. Uh, You know, there's sometimes a tendency because you have film of the early 20th century and because the 1920s, I think, specifically created a modern era that we can kind of recognize and be excited by. It can sometimes be hard to connect with like an earlier zeitgeist. To think of the 19th century, it sometimes seems very like formal and uh, distant a little bit. It, It can be hard to kind of get to the meat of that. I think Mark Twain, by focusing on this more informed, this, you know, the Tom Sawyer thing, it does feel like a universally recognizable vision of childhood for all of the things it does or doesn't include technology and everything have radically changed arguably to the point of unrecognizability nonetheless this in the dialogue in the uh and, and, you know for all of the that the dialect has changed just the things they talk about the way they talk about them i don't know as i say this i'm questioning myself like what are you talking about like you know kids today talking about like Fortnite or whatever what does that have to do with like tom sawyer and his friends playing pirates but but like that there still is that there's a continuity let me put it this way i've rambled enough there's a continuity in childhood sensibilities i think that isn't so much there in adult sensibilities i think it would be harder for an adult of 1850 and an adult of 2018 to kind of understand each other or relate to each other or see each other in a way than it would be for a child of 1850 and a child of 2018. I'm not sure why that is, but that's, that seems about right. And then also the, just that kind of middle American milieu, there's something kind of t- not timeless exactly about it, but the myth of it resonates. I can't say more than that, but that's just how I felt about that. So I, I really enjoyed watching, I think especially in some ways, that first part of the part one Mark Twain before he'd even written anything just this overview of American society and his passage through it I mean he was a steamboat captain in his early 20s in the late 1850s he already was at this point where he'd had these interesting experience he had a tragedy with his brother he's traveling up and down the Mississippi he's learning the ins and outs of it and at one point he thought you know this is what I'll do for the rest of my life and to think he was there at like 23 and then he still had this whole life to lead for better and for worse it's a fascinating biography If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. I have hundreds of hours of material available on Patreon for those who want more. Lots of podcasts going back to 2018. And finally, here is a preview of the next episode where we are going to dip back into Twin Peaks Cinema for more films by episode directors, four films by people who uh, directed episodes of Twin Peaks, and I relate those films to... Uh, the episodes that they directed into the show as a whole. So often I like to keep it somewhat cryptic as to what the next episode is. 
in terms of the actual subject, but I'll just say it here because these are going to be short little clips. So that's the films The Wizard, Francis, Pay the Ghost, and Heaven by the directors Todd Holland, uh, Graham Clifford, uh, Yuli Edel, and Diane Keaton. Yes, she directed a film. So you can hear the little snippets of that and check in for that in two weeks. See you then. It's going to take a lot of guts. You can do it! A little magic. She fought for an ideal. How can I keep making movies when people are starving? She risked everything for what she believed in. I've been doing some research. Did you know that more children who disappear on Halloween don't ever come back? What if all of these missing children, what if they're all connected? What if there's something behind it? I won't have to worry about getting fat anymore. <laughs> I can eat all I want. <laughs> I'll be like Burt Reynolds or, or any other star. 